Stories Behind the White Coat. This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. Welcome to our Thanksgiving edition of Grayscale. We have not one, but three stories for you today. So loosen up the belt, put on your pants with the elastic waistband, because there's a lot to digest here today. Our guest today is George Garcia, faculty at Swedish First Hill Family Medicine Residency. George will be retiring at the end of the month. We'll be sad to see him go. When not working, George is a talented songwriter and pianist for our residency band, Plan B. And as always, certain names and details are changed to protect the identity of our patients. So Ben, you asked me to come tonight and to talk a little bit about my experience as a doctor in family medicine. And of course, there's a million things one can talk about in terms of being a doctor. I am about to leave my clinical practice, so I've been thinking a lot about that. And I think that one of the things that is super meaningful to me as a doctor is that one can, one can take a really narrow reductionist approach to a patient and to their story or not, or take a, a more broad, expansive view. One of my pet peeves as a faculty is when a resident says something like, um, the 38-year-old female presents with bleeding and pelvic pain. And I hate the fact that people say 38-year-old female as if it could be a female beagle or a female dolphin. It's always a female human, so why not say a 38-year-old woman? Or even worse, when people say, I'm going to round on the stroke in room 757, reducing that whole person down to not even uh, age and gender, but actually a single disease. And so I hate that. And I think the thing that is interesting and beautiful and difficult about family medicine is that we can do the expansive thing with patients and see and figure out who they are really, which is hard because we're not just one thing, we're a whole bunch of things. And so in thinking about talking to you, I had thought of three patient uh, visits, patient events that I've had in the last 30 years of being a clinician. There are many, many such events as you all know, but I was going to just tell you three stories. And the first one this was a, a patient that I saw when I was about five years out of residency. Actually, I took a practice here in Seattle from an old doctor who retired, and he had a lot of old, charming, beautiful patients. And this one couple I particularly loved. They were 88 years old, so they were old. They had been married for 66 years, and I loved that about them. And they had this very thick uh, kind of hard-on-the-ear accent, but they were beautiful. They were always together. They always came together. They leaned on each other. He always came dressed beautifully with a suit and a tie. She always had this big silver cross that she wore around her neck. They were very, very religious. And I just loved them. They were very proper, but also really nice. Like, she would bring, they had a fig tree in their backyard. They lived in West Seattle. They would bring a box of fresh figs in the summertime, which I just loved, right? Um, anyways, they were getting old, and she had a few little medical problems, and I wanted to find out about 
you know, the rest of their family. And I asked them, I knew they had a daughter and I wanted to talk to the daughter and reach out to her. And they were always, both of them were always very like, ah, I don't think you should talk to our daughter. She lives in the East Coast. She's far away. And, um, and so I didn't. And then this woman had a little stroke and I once again wanted to reach out to the daughter. Um, and she discouraged me from doing so. And then a few months later, she had a big stroke, and actually she died from her stroke. And that same week that she died, her husband, I diagnosed, we diagnosed him with prostatic cancer, metastatic. He had cancer in his spine, he had cancer in his pelvis. And um, he continued to come to the clinic, dressed beautifully, still his gruff but proper self, kind of this weird, like I always felt like there was something I didn't know about him, something mysterious, but he always presented himself beautifully. And he started to decline. He got weaker and finally was admitted pretty sick to the hospital and rapidly got sicker. He went into renal failure. His blood pressure started to drop. And so I did actually end up finding his daughter's phone number and calling her and she immediately flew to Seattle. And the next day in the morning, I walked over to the, to the ward where he was, and I saw her and her husband standing outside of his room. Her eyes were red. She was crying. And, um, and I kind of peeked into the patient's room. I had talked to the nurse already, so I knew that he was doing terribly. And I peeked into the room, and he was just basically doing agonal breathing. He was dying. And she had arrived just as he was dying. He had stopped responding whatsoever the evening before, had become completely unresponsive all night, and was basically about to die. And that's when she was seeing him. And then her husband pulled me aside and told me that this woman, his wife, had been raped by her father from the age of 14 to the age of 18. That it was actually her stepdad, it wasn't her real dad, her dad had died. And that she had suffered this trauma for years, had talked to her mother, had tried to get help from her mother. Her mother refused to believe her. In the end, her mother essentially kicked her out of the house, and she left when she was 18. And both the parents never wrote to her, never called her for 40 years, didn't communicate with her. And this is the first time she's seeing her dad. She actually, turns out she had come to Seattle when her mom had her first stroke, and came to their house and the mom refused to let her in. And that afternoon, this patient died. And so, for me, it's like one of the times that I've understood as a doctor how difficult it is to really know somebody and how it, the truth is one never really knows somebody. How so, we each have so many different sides to ourselves. We can, as, as family medicine docs, I think we can, get, we can get close to people, we can see many sides, but the truth is that there are infinite number of sides and sometimes awful sides that we only see after a long, long time. And so in that same sense of, of the feeling that people have kind of multiples, multitudes inside of each one of us and are much more complicated than we ever know, but that, in family medicine, you can if you want, and if you're patient, and if you're interested, you can kind of get close to 
the multiplicity that we are as human beings. So this, the second event is with a patient that I had shortly after residency. It was a little tiny clinic, and some of my patients were actually also friends and colleagues and workers in the clinic because it was a little place and there weren't many clinics or many doctors. We were a very close-knit clinic. We had potlucks almost every single weekend. We knew each other pretty well. And I started taking care of this woman who was a nurse in our clinic when she got pregnant. And um, everybody in the clinic knew that this woman was having an affair with one of the ministers in town. He was a lovely guy, this minister, very gregarious, funny. He would come to our potluck. So the truth is everybody knew this guy. But no, the only person that seemed to not know about her affair was her husband, who also worked in the clinic. So it was a very odd thing. And when she got pregnant, I was actually pretty happy because I thought maybe she was prioritizing her marriage over her affair and that she was going to give the marriage some energy by this pregnancy. And the, the pregnancy went totally well, which is a great thing and not a, a standard thing for medical people. Unfortunately, a lot of medical people have difficult pregnancies, but hers was normal. The delivery was totally fine. The baby, as all babies, was weird and beautiful at the same time. And, and everything was beautiful and everything was great. And I started having my first feeling like something wasn't right when the baby came in at his one-year check. You know, when a baby, babies all look kind of the same, you know, um, but by the time you get to be a year old, you start to look like yourself. And this baby definitely did not look like mom and absolutely did not look like dad. In fact, he looked like the minister, very much like the minister. And so I started feeling, oh, I wonder what's going on here. And when the baby came in for his 15-month well-child check, I said something to the patient, kind of opened the door for her to talk about it. But she, she, she let me know somehow that this was not a topic she wanted to talk about. So I thought, okay, that's fine. And I let it go. And then a couple of weeks later, this was now on a Friday, right at the end of clinic, the dad comes into my office. There were only a few of us left in the clinic at that time. He comes into my office and he closes the door behind him, sits down, and he puts an envelope on my desk. And he says, this proves that I am not the father. And I, you know, had no idea what to say because I didn't even know he knew about the affair or anything. And she, he goes, yeah, this proves, you know, this is, I did a blood test on myself and I have the blood test for my son and this proves that I'm not the father. And it's one of those things where I had no idea really what to say in part because I didn't know what my role was, who, whose doctor was I being. And this guy, he was actually also my patient. But he rarely came in. He only came in with his son. But I saw him all the time in clinic every single day. So I knew him really well. And I don't know, was I his doctor? Was I his wife's doctor? The kids? What was my role? I had no idea. So I just didn't know what to do. And finally, I just reached out and I just touched his shoulder. And then he kind of, a few minutes later, he kind of got up and he left. And he left the envelope on my desk. And so I didn't know what to do. I really didn't want to get into this at that 
point. It was Friday night. I was actually driving to Seattle that evening. I just didn't want to have this in my brain all weekend. So I decided to just leave the envelope, and I figured I'd deal with it on Monday. And when I came back on Monday, the envelope was gone. It was kind of weird, and it was gone. And that seemed to be the end of it. And I was only going to be working there for another couple of more months. And then I left the clinic, and that was that. I mean, I stayed close to this clinic. The people were friends, and I would go back every once in a while. We had these weekend potlucks, and I went back about a year later. And this family was there in the potluck, and they were just like a normal, happy family. Um, the son was now three years old. He looked even more like the minister. But, he, but they were just normal. Everybody was hanging out. The minister apparently left town several months before, and so he wasn't there. And uh, after a few minutes, the dad came over to me with the son in his hand, and he said, Doctor, I just want to apologize for that whole paternity thing I did. This is clearly my son. And then he walks away. And um, it's just, an, you know, again, one of those things where we are all so complicated and the role that we play as docs is very complicated as well, where we can give people the chance to discover and to learn things about themselves and about others. And also there's, I think, a role for simply not opening cans and not opening. I never opened that envelope. I never looked at it. I have no idea what it said. So speaking to that feeling of the complexity and the richness of humanity. And the problem, I think, where doctors sometimes take that and just ignore it and reduce people down to that, you know, down to an organ or a disease. So the last event I'm going to tell you about is among the most difficult experiences I've had as a doctor. This was a patient that I, I got to know pretty well. I knew her when she was a college student, and I... She was a patient, and then she remained a patient with me when she had her boyfriend and got married. She was always a person who was kind of like nothing was really a problem for her, and certainly nothing medical was ever a problem. Like she didn't make a big deal out of anything around her health care. She was very nonchalant. She both was not concerned, but also kind of not aware of medical issues. She simply was not not involved with healthcare and not involved with worries about the body or the health. She had told me before that she was not interested in getting pregnant ever. And so I was really surprised when one day she came in pregnant and planning on keeping the pregnancy and going through with it. And she had a pretty rough first trimester. But things then got stable and she did fine. She delivered the baby and the thing is that as soon as the baby was born, a whole different side of her came out, which was never I had never seen before. Rather than being this go with the flow, everything's okay, in terms of the health issues, like she was with her own body, she was super concerned with her baby as a little girl. Every little thing became an issue. She, anytime the girl had a cold, a runny nose, a pink eye, a rash she would call me or come to the clinic. So she was coming in constantly, calling all the time. 
the little girl was always having some potential problem. And the kid was actually quite healthy and just had the usual kid things. But, but the mom was always concerned, always anxious, always worried. And this thing gradually built and came to a head a bit when the child was almost a year old. So this little girl was physically precocious. So she started walking when she was 10 months old. She was very physical. And when she was almost a year old, she was on the changing table, rolled over, fell from the table, hit the floor. And the mom called the clinic, super worried. We told her to come in. She came in. It was, of course, at the end of the clinic, like always. And she arrives, and she was just, the mom was in tears. She was distraught. She just could not be reassured. The girl was totally fine. She was running around, grabbing everything, playful, totally well, had not even a bruise anywhere on her forehead or anything. But the mom was just worried beyond. And finally, against my better judgment, I ordered an X-ray of the little girl's head. And so they went off to radiology to get this film. The dad was going to meet them there, and um, he did. And then he ended up taking the child home while the woman waited for the film to bring it back to me. This was in the days before they had films <laughs> in the computer. So she had to actually bring the x-ray to me. And it was at the end of the clinic. I, uh, there was only me and one other resident in clinic. And we uh, popped us the film up on the light box, and she was there with me, and we were looking at it. And of course, the x-ray was completely normal. There was nothing wrong with it at all. And we're looking at the x-ray. And then the patient, she, uh, she started talking to me. She said, I want to tell you something that I've never told anybody else. And in a kind of a weird, forced whisper, she tells me this whole story. She says that she grew up in a little town near Seattle. And in this town, there is a park right in the middle of town that has a big fairly steep hill that was where people would gather, townspeople would gather for all kinds of things. So in the wintertime, it was a sledding hill. In the summertime, it was just a, a park where people played. They had picnics and so forth. And when she was 15 years old, she was in high school, she and her friends, this was right at the end of summer, were playing on this park, and they were sort of in the very, very top of the hill. There were all kinds of people in the park. She was on the very top of the hill with her friends. And she had found this big boulder and was cradling it in her lap. She said the boulder was the size of a, of a bowling ball. And one by one, her friends left and went home. And she was sitting there by herself. It was evening, this big boulder in her lap. And for some reason, she decided to just roll the boulder down the hill. And she set the boulder down, and it started rolling, and rolled, and rolled, and picked up speed, and bounced. And she saw that it was going right towards a group of kids, a, a little family, some kids sitting on a towel at the bottom of the hill. And she freaked out, didn't know what to do. She stood up and ran down the hill on the other side of the hill, the hill where the park was, went towards town, she went the other way, just as the boulder hit one of the kids. And um, the kid was, she thinks, about the age of her daughter, also a girl. And 
She didn't know what to do that weekend. She felt like she couldn't breathe. She, school started the next week. She went to school. She kept waiting for something to happen, for the police to come to school and take her. But nothing happened. And she did hear that a child was injured by a boulder. That was a child that was from out of town. It was an out-of-town family, tourists that were just passing through this town that weekend. But she basically didn't hear much about it. Nobody ever talked about it. And that's the last time she ever really thought about it. But of course, she thought about it all the time. And it was always with her. And now that her daughter was one year old, this whole thing was in her, her head. Anyways, we looked at this x-ray for a few more minutes. I didn't know what to say. It was, again, one of those things where there is nothing that can be said. And finally, she thanked me for examining her daughter and left. And the next day, I called to see how the kid was doing. The, the daughter was fine. And I saw them, this family, maybe two months later for just a routine. I forget even why that they came in. And the mom, when the, the child and the dad went out to get a vaccine, and the mom said, Doctor, do you think I'm evil? And I, I, then I did say something. I said something like, no, you're an excellent mom. Your daughter is super lucky to have you. You're a fantastic mother. And that's that. And it just, just there are so many examples, and Ben, I'm sure you have many, many examples, when one makes oneself available to people, they will reveal themselves, and people are complicated. People have many sides. And I think a lot of doctors, maybe out of being in a hurry, for a lot of reasons, we just find it convenient to reduce patients down to the disease, to the littlest, smallest unit that you can just say, dispose of, and forget. But it is, I think, the, the beauty and the burden of family medicine where we have the ability to be with patients and to really hear them out. And sometimes I think that can be, that can be helpful to the patients, and it's always interesting to the doctor. Now, George, you just used the word interesting there. I have a sneaky suspicion that there might be more behind that word. you care to elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that? Yeah, I had a professor in college who refused to let us ever use the word interesting because it's one of those garbage words. It, it is a burden. It is definitely a burden because these things, I mean, these patients that I'm talking about tonight are people that I saw more than 10 years ago, and I still remember every single detail of those encounters. I mean, I can see them with my eye. I can... I can totally remember the events. They don't go away. But they are interesting in the sense that, for me, the thing that allows me to feel love, to feel compassion, to appreciate somebody, is knowing them and knowing them well. For sure, the more you know somebody, the more you will realize that they are weird. I think that everybody is 
strange, weird, odd, interesting, if you know them well enough. But that's also what allows them to be lovable and to have the hearts join and meet. This is where the smiley face emoticons would be useful. <laughs> you're, you're speaking in text now. It's in, I was about to say interesting right there. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of time since you told these three stories and the present. If you were to experience any of these again, would you approach it differently? I think that I have evolved for sure from away from talking more towards listening. I think that when I was a, a young doctor, and you see this in residence all the time, there is this desire to teach, to talk, to explain. There's a feeling that we are mainly teachers, uh, that there's as much as we can describe diseases, medications, processes, the better. With pregnancy, we love to describe every single detail as if that was the right thing to do. And when a patient comes in with a problem, we, we have the desire to give advice, to say, to say things, even if it's just reassuring things, like, no, you're not evil. There is this, this desire to reassure, to make the patient comfortable, to make things okay. And I think that I have shifted over the years to being much more of an ear, of listening, and of not being too fast at reassurance, letting, letting the discomfort exist, because it's easy to close the doors, it's easy to close the, to close the mystery, to close the chance the patient has to say something that they don't even know themselves. That last patient um, with the boulder, she told me that I was the first person that ever heard that event, and I think I may be the only person that ever hears that event. I have a feeling that she hadn't even really told it to herself. It was almost like a thing that she was telling me afterwards, she couldn't really be absolutely sure that she saw the boulder hit the child because she remembers the boulder both, both hitting the child and her running down the other side of the hill before the boulder hit the child. She couldn't even be absolutely sure that she dropped the boulder, that it wasn't just a boulder that happened to fall while she was there. It was the memory was mixed up and, and yet very powerful in her mind. And she had, late in that clinic afternoon, finally the opportunity to try to find that story inside of her. And I think she recognized herself that it was the source of a lot of her anxiety around her daughter. Anyways, the point being that I think the more I, I've learned that the better, the, the, the more I can listen and not speak, open and not close, just wonder and not prescribe, the better. In the second story, you mentioned that the envelope was gone when you came back to your office on Monday. What would you have done if it was still there on Monday? I don't know. That was, that was a lucky blessing on, for me that I didn't have to deal with it because I know that basically I didn't want to deal with it. But for me, that was, in, the, in a way, that story taught me that there will, there will remain 
unanswered questions and that sometimes the question needs to remain unanswered. The family somehow made peace with this event, and I don't know how they did it. I don't think that they had a big conversation. That's not my sense of how they operate. I think more the dad decided to, I don't know, get rid of the envelope and move on and be the dad and both know and not know about this whole affair and about this other father. And I think my role there was to let that be the case. Grace Skills produced by Ben Davis. Special thank you to George Garcia for joining me today. And a big thank you to Swedish First Hill Family Medicine Residency, as well as everyone else who's shown their support. You know who you are. And finally, a big thank you to our patients who continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences. If you're interested in sharing your own story, email us at thegrayscalepodcast at gmail.com. Whether one takes a narrow or broad view of a person and how that can change and how we change that in family medicine. And specifically, one of the things that... <laughs> oh, what was that? I just realized that I'm making that sound. <laughs> <laughs>